deep into the world's oceans and into the ionosphere, unquote. The ionosphere is an electrically conducting set of layers of the Earth's atmosphere about 30 miles to up to 250 miles above the planet's surface in which atmospheric gases are ionized by solar radiation. It is also the ionosphere that Nikolai Tesla claimed that he was able to oscillate with some kind of strong focused energy back in the 1920s. This high-tech military device is called Project HARP, H-A-A-R-P, High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program. Aurora looks like it refers to aurora, and aurora usually is an electric discharge of ionized gas where, uh, over the poles or the, or the polar regions. The cost so far is estimated to be $30 million for a demonstration test scheduled for December 1994 next month to see if the computers can focus an electromagnetic beam into the ionosphere where the focus is desired. After that, several more millions of dollars are needed to evolve Project HARP into what has been described as, quote, the most powerful such transmitter on Earth, unquote. Hmm. What has several civilians in Alaska worry about, though, especially those residents who live in the Gakona, Alaska area where the transmitter has been built, is why they can't get specific answers from anyone about how such a military project was approved and funded with taxpayer dollars without anyone knowing, even those Gakona, Alaska residents who found out a few months ago when the Federal Aviation Administration began advising commercial pilots about how to avoid large amounts of intentional electromagnetic radiation that Project HARP will generate and beam into the sky. Despite the protests of FAA engineers and Alaska bush pilots and ham radio operators, the final environmental impact statement from the federal government's EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, gave Project HARP a green light for construction, which began last year and is now completed. It's ready to start experimenting with the ionosphere. But Anchorage resident, ham radio operator, and reporter Claire Zicker, who writes for Earth Island Journal, says communication to submarines might not be the whole story. Okay, here comes a report, folks. But in a congressional budget request, uh, the Senate subcommittee report noted that they wanted to increase the... Uh, the money that they'd hunt for, fund for HARP in 96. And the reason was so that they could allow Earth-penetrating tomography over more, most of the Northern Hemisphere, in effect, turning it into a powerful X-ray machine capable of scanning regions looking for uh, hidden tunnels and stuff like that. Over all of the North American Hemisphere? <laughs> You see how bizarre some of this starts to sound? My Lord, and you, have you seen this with your own eyes? Yes, yes, I'll send you that too. <laughs> well, when, and you understand that tomography means being able to to somehow see underneath the surface of the ground. That, that's all I, I mean, that's the only way I relate to that word, right. And what would happen? For you and I, uh, lay people, uh, ex, you know, x-raying would be the 
the thing we would relate to that's similar, although I'm sure this isn't uh, radiation rays like a, a gamma ray. Well, uh, and has any of the uh, congressional discussion uh, on this Project HARP discussed the impact of these uh, strong electromagnetic focused beams bounced back or whatever on uh, biological systems? Um. I have not found anything in the congressional stuff anywhere. Uh, we can barely get any of our our uh, elected legislators here to admit they know anything about it, yet I'm somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 to 90 percent certain that Ted Stevens uh, is getting some military monies for Alaska through this, and that's uh, that may be as much as he knows. I'm not sure. But in the last 12 months or so, you have not gotten any kind of straightforward, articulated explanation for what HARP's whole agenda is. Correct. Correct. We, the best we've gotten is a February 1990 document that we generally refer to as the RFP document. It's, uh, it's the one that describes the kinds of things that are in the, uh, the Earth Island article. And RFP stands for? Request for a proposal. It would be what what I would uh, go out to the various people that might try to build this thing. It would be the meeting where they all got together and, and you know, they picked some bidders. And, and who, who wrote that RFP and held the meeting? Air Force and Navy. So it's an Air Force Navy sponsored project. Yeah. And... Phillips Labs... Uh, uh, geophysical labs at uh, Haskell is the main control point that we've been able to ascertain. There's some among us that believe Los Alamos may be the real control point, but we're, I can almost see that connection uh, if you talk about Los Alamos relative to non-lethal weapons, which you could easily construe this to be one of, mm -hmm. then, then I connect. Um, but they've carefully avoided ever calling this a weapon. Hmm. All it would disrupt is communications according to the way they've laid it out. Hmm. So the fact that you might be able to do more than that, uh, you might be able to knock missiles out of the sky, like if you, if you did through the Eastland patent, you know, you start getting into that kind of scenario. Okay, that it could be used to knock things out of the sky. Yeah. And was this transmitter in your Alaska area built in one year between last spring and now? Yes. The, the antenna field, uh, they started leveling that a year ago, uh, you know, laying a gravel pad, flattening it and all that sort of thing. The uh, antenna substructures, uh, I drove by them in August and uh, took a sneak drive in there and looked at it uh, when I was out that direction on vacation. And uh, I've since seen air photos uh, in a, uh, a local news magazine from that area of uh, a more or less completed antenna field where they've got the actual crossed dipoles uh, out there now. Now, how could they build all of this unless they were on some kind of federal land to begin with without well, getting... They are. They are. That, that's an old over-the-horizon radar site that got shut down when, uh, you know, the Berlin Wall came out. Now, truly, this project, uh, in every way, shape, and form that I understand what it's doing, has Star Wars written all over it. Hmm. You know, uh, truly, you could have used the 
device very similar to this to project power into space to maybe power a giant laser beam to knock something else out. You know, there's the concepts of getting the energy up there seem fairly simple. Mm -hmm. So this may have been a continuation of an SDI project, but renamed and reconfigured because we are supposed to be out of a Cold War. Got it. Wow. And art, as you know, since the Reagan administration in the 1980s, there have long been rumors that the Star Wars program is actually part of some kind of Earth secret war uh, with an off-planet intelligence. That's the question we always have to keep raising. Well, I have two big questions, Linda. One involves, I wonder what frequencies uh, will be emitted by this HARP project, uh, both toward the ionosphere and apparently toward the Earth. This sounds like a dual mission. Uh, they said they're going to be looking for hidden tunnels, in effect, mapping the underground Earth. That's what I got out of it. Yeah. And, then, and then also trying to affect the ionosphere. By, yeah, manipulating it, oscillating it, and by actually blasting holes in it. Oh, wow. Um, as a ham operator, I'm fascinated, and we will all be listening. And I promise you, Linda, we will be able to give you some input on what frequencies are in use. All right. And also, I think uh, we should also address the issue of wildlife because what's bothering these people is the same thing that should be bothering all of us who are taxpayers. This enormous project, and it may not be the only one on the, on the uh, surface of the Earth. There may be some other uh, transmitters constructed like this, uh, perhaps to work in concert together, but what the whole overall agenda is is not clear. But this harp site lies 140 miles north of the town of Cordova on Prince William Sound, which is on the northwest tip of Alaska's Wrangell-St. Elias National Park. Since ordinary radar is known to be deadly to low-flying birds, harp's powerful radiation beam could pose a problem for migratory birds because the transmitter stands right in the pathway of what's called the critical Pacific flyway for some of the big birds. In addition, HARP's ability to generate strong magnetic fields could conceivably interfere with the migration of birds, marine life, and arctic animals that are known to rely on the Earth's magnetic fields to navigate over long distances. As uh, Claire, uh, his name is Claire Zicker, uh, who has been writing for Earth Island Journal, said, these are all unknowns, and it may be that nothing will be known until they experiment, but what might be set in motion as a consequence of the experimentation? And one further question, which I'm hoping that listeners will actually write their congressional representatives in whatever state and ask about this Project HARP, because according to one DOD consultant named Robert Windsor, they that even if HARP's beam were to be directed primarily at the ionosphere, people on the ground would still have reason to be concerned. On clear, damp nights, when there's moisture in the air, downdraft, temperature inversions, mm -hmm. it can cause something that's like a ducting or a super refracting that can send energy uh, beams streaming back to the Earth with a, and this is the quote, a significant up to tenfold increase in field intensity from what may be being beamed to the ionosphere. A 
it seems to me that this is an area of many unknowns and nothing has been answered and people who are living in Alaska who have tried to find out the details have been sort of given a runaround and this is being paid for by tax dollars and this is one area where in the United States of America we could at least maybe have a leverage point on where some of our money is going. Let's see if we can put a little pressure on and find out. That's fascinating, uh, Linda, fascinating. All right. Um, where will you be next week? I think I'm going to be reporting from Philadelphia again. Okay, excellent. Uh, let's get your address and telephone number out. Thanks. It's Linda Howe at Post Office Box 538 in Huntingdon Valley, Pennsylvania, spelled H-U-N-T-I-N-G, D as in dog, O-N, Huntingdon Valley, Pennsylvania, the zip code is 19006, and I'm going to give out my fax number. It's area code 215-491-9842. And I look forward to correspondence uh, from a Dreamland uh, audience. Uh, you are giving me a tremendous amount of fascinating information and I'm going to keep trying to report pieces of it as we continue in our evolution here of trying to find out greater truths. Linda, that's fascinating. Uh, fascinating report. Thank you very much and we'll talk to you next week. Okay. Take care. Uh, Linda Howe, and that is fascinating. One, uh, it just begs all kinds of questions and that is what kind of effect they're trying to have on the ionosphere. How will that uh, affect terrestrial communications? Could it possibly affect the ionosphere permanently in some way? And why in God's name would they be looking for hidden tunnels trying to map them below the Earth? The whole thing is a little odd. Project Harp. We'll keep our eye on that one. In a moment, um, Dave uh, Talbot is going to be here, and I think you're going to find what he has to say absolutely fascinating. The most Melkowski's work became the exclusive subject of a journal called Penze. Founded and published by our guest, Dave Talbot. Over the following two years, a ten-issue series, Emmanuel Velikovsky Reconsidered, helped to bring considerable international attention to the Velikovsky debate. The first issue became the number one bestseller on several college campuses and inspired stories in Reader's Digest, Analog, Time Magazine, Physics Today, Chemistry, Industrial Research, and World Medical Tribune, and numerous other publications. In 1974, portions of the Pense series were published by Doubleday, the nation's largest publisher, uh, as the book Velikovsky Reconsidered. In addition to the well-publicized claims of worlds in collision, Velikovsky had, in a brief and unpublished outline set forth an extraordinary idea. He suggested that in the earliest age remembered by man, the Earth was a satellite of the planet Saturn, a planet Velikovsky associated with a former golden age. He identified Saturn as the dying god of ancient lore, and he claimed that a disruption of Saturn was responsible for the mythical del deluge. But over the last 25 years of his life, the details of his Saturn research remained sketchy, and nothing more than a few pages were ever published. In just a moment, we'll bring on Dave Talbot, and he'll talk about uh, old myths, or is it old reality, Bilokovsky, and worlds in collision. Next.
on Dreamland. You're hearing Greenland with Art Bell. To participate in the program, call toll-free 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. First-time callers, area code 702-727-1222. Or the wildcard line at 702-727-1295. This is the CBC Radio Network. Was there really a time when people on Earth looked up to see planets... Close passes, or perhaps even worse, in contention with Earth, were planets that close? Was Earth a satellite of uh, Saturn? Let's find out. Uh, Dave Talbot is my guest, and he comes to us, I think, from someplace up in Oregon. Dave, are you there? I am indeed, sir. It's Beaverton, Oregon. Beaverton, Oregon. All right. Um, well, all right, I'm a little sketchy on your work and on that of Miss Velikovsky, so uh, catch us up. Help us. <laughs> okay, will do. Velikovsky published a book uh, called Worlds in Collision in 1950. It was a number one bestseller. It started a horrendous controversy that has gone through some ebb and flow over the past 45 years, but... Velikovsky himself, who came to his study with a great deal of prestige uh, academically, was wholly disgraced by the scientific community with that publication. Uh, Velikovsky had been a colleague of Albert Einstein's and, and other leading scholars internationally, but uh, the scientific community was not able to endure Velikovsky's publishing a book of the sort of Worlds in Collision. In that book, Velikovsky argued that the solar system as a whole has been unstable in historical times. Most specifically, and what got Velikovsky in the worst trouble was his claim that the planet Venus, only a few thousand years ago, had coursed through the solar system as a comet-like body, and it nearly collided with the Earth on two occasions oh. with devastating results. Particularly because Velikovsky used ancient historical sources, astronomical texts and mythological sources, the astronomical community and the scientific community believed that he had lost it, basically. And uh, that was the beginning of a, a controversy that has continued. One thing that began in the early 70s was that a number of scholars took real, uh, well, serious interest in the Velikovsky question and began pursuing independent lines of research to, to see just how solid were Velikovsky's basic ideas. That was the time that I got interested in Velikovsky. I was publishing a uh, small journal called Ponce, and we decided to put out a special issue on the subject of Velikovsky. Mm -hmm. And the journal just exploded as a result of that, uh, and it became a big seller around the world. It was called uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky Reconsidered, and that led then to a total of 10 issues on the subject of Velikovsky. 
And as a result of that, quite a group of people did begin independent uh, research. And this is a very big subject. Uh, I was one who began research with a very particular interest in Velikovsky's claims about the planet Saturn in the earliest remembered times. And uh, I and others pursued the research rather quietly for many years. Now we feel that there ha has been a convergence of research in just the recent years and also very significant space-age discovery that is dramatically supportive of Velikovsky's claims. What is that? Pardon me? What, is, what are the discoveries that are supportive of this claim? You bet. Well, number one, let's just take the Magellan probe of Venus. What we see on the planet Venus uh, today is massive volcanism. We see continental scale lava flows where the normal impacting of meteors and so on over extended periods of time would, you would think, have created substantial, uh, sub substantial scars on the surface. Mm -hmm. But in major areas of Venus, you find no impact craters at all. There's been an immense catastrophe a planet-wide on Venus. There are many converging lines of evidence uh, that are emphasized now from the Magellan probe and, and with leading physicists and uh, astronomers debating each other as to how it could happen that this surface was so recently sculpted. You have the whole phenomenon of missing rivers and oceans on Mars. By some force, who knows what, water descended on the planet and then it boiled off. Yes. That's an unknown uh, phenomenon. It was not expected by astronomers and no one has produced a, an explanation that has gained any scientific consensus. Okay, Dave, what are we suggesting here? That, um, that planetary close calls or planetary... Uh, uh, close passes, um, did these, uh, these various uh, catastrophic things to the surface of these planets, is that the idea? That's the basic idea, and that's a, a fundamental Velikovsky idea, Art. I don't know if anybody in the history of science, let's say in the history of modern science, ever proposed such a thing, that the planetary system itself was unstable in historical times, that planets moved on irregular courses, that planets engaged each other in celestial combat, so to speak, and with devastating results, uh, not just on the surfaces of the planets, but in Velikovsky's argument, mankind witnessed such cataclysms, civilizations were devastated, and a collective memory of those events was perpetuated in the form of ancient myth. I was about to ask about ancient uh, myth. In other words, uh, a lot of these planets were assigned uh, myths because uh, we, we had very close encounters with them. They had very large effects on the people on Earth. Is that correct? That's the fundamental claim of Velikovsky. I believe that uh, completely. I pursued that area of research for many years. I feel that a definitive argument can be made that the ancient gods were planets or planetary in character, that all of mankind uh, was obsessed with the behavior of the planets, and th that uh, the origins of ancient civilization, the origins of the great mythical tra and symbolic traditions, 
the first expressions of primitive religions, uh, really all of the distinguishing attributes of civilizations themselves can be related to man's response to these celestial phenomena. All right. If if uh, if locally it was so totally disruptive uh, with the orbits perturbing all over the place and close calls or even hits, something uh, had to come along and straighten all that out in view of the present uh, alignment. Well, uh, th there is a challenge for anyone working within the Velikovskian tradition as to how to explain dynamically a transition from a catastrophic uh, solar system to a, a, a very peaceful and quiet and very regular solar system. And there are physicists who are, are working diligently in that area. I have to emphasize, Art, I am not a physicist myself, and I have pretty much uh, focused my own attention on the ancient records. But the question you ask is indeed a very valid question and uh, is being actively discussed now. I, I do firmly believe from what I've been able to pick up on these issues theoretically that the answers are there, that we don't have to go outside of present uh, understanding and so on to, to, to come to see how that kind of a transition was made. But the, the dramatic claim of all of the Velikovskian researchers is that the solar system was only a few thousand years ago very unstable. Precisely, because that would be the age of, of, that, of that myth. So that was not long ago at all. Oh, I would say, uh, well, Velikovsky, let's start with his own thesis. He claimed in 1500 B.C. there was a, a near collision of the Earth with a comet like Venus. And he also postulated a couple of of subsequent catastrophes involving the planet Mars. Uh, there are issues among catastrophists relative to chronology and dating. Uh, I personally have my doubts about the more recent uh, catastrophes claimed by Velikovsky. I tend to think that the, the catastrophes with which the ancient mythical traditions are concerned were immediately prehistoric. That means they occurred just prior to the, the rise of civilization and the primary activity of the builders of civilization really was uh, was a reflection of these e events in many many different ways that we can talk about All right. uh, let me ask you this I've had a couple of recent guests on dreamland uh, who have felt that there are one that there is one perhaps two rogue planets that from time to time return and will uh, come very close to Earth, causing uh, a terrible catastrophe, a, a reversal, of, well, if not a reversal, at least a pole change on which uh, we would move, uh, the pole would move uh, several degrees, and uh, in other words, a polar shift. And uh, I wonder if that fits into any of his theories, Velikovsky. I think it fits in at least within a general theoretical framework. Uh, now, I'm not sure what... The, the proponents that you're referring to are uh, saying about these rogue planets, whether they're identified, uh, uh, I presume they're not identified with any known planet today. No, they are not. So uh, that would be a distinction from the Velikovsky uh, viewpoint, because Velikovsky argues very forcefully that 
certain specific planets are identified with specific types of catastrophes, the planet Mars, the planet Venus, and the planet uh, Saturn in particular are, are related to very specific catastrophic uh, episodes. But anyone who's arguing that, uh, that planets roamed through the solar system at certain ancient periods and caused great catastrophe would be very close to a Velikovskian idea, I think. So, in other words, uh, outside of our own solar system, you're suggesting there could be planets that are virtual roamers and that uh, w might um, at any time enter our solar system? Well, you know, Art, I don't actually have any opinion on, on that particular issue because I myself focused on planetary mythology where the identities of the planets can be quite clearly uh, and definitively established. So mm -hmm. I've looked very extensively at the ancient mythology of the planet Saturn. There's a coherent story there, and I believe that story was in fact recorded around the world, and it is a, a quite incredible tale, and there are definite... Uh, uh, coherent images attached to the planet Venus around the world, and incidentally, those images are all the hieroglyphs in ancient languages for the comet. There is a massive amount of evidence to prove, I think conclusively, that uh, ancient star worshippers did remember Venus as a comet-like body in the sky. And in fact, it was the prototype of the comet. All the things that they thought about or feared about comets originated in that experience of the prototypical comet, which was Venus. And that's why all of those cometary hieroglyphs are from Mesoamerica to China to ancient Mesopotamia attached to the planet Venus. Fascinating. Is there any... Um... Uh, is there any idea that um, anything could occur in modern times or in the future that would relate to what he studied about in the recent past? Well, um, I myself, again, do not feel in a position to express an opinion on that. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is if things were recently unstable and are even more recently stable, then why shouldn't we believe they could again be unstable from whatever it is that stabilized us? You bet. <laughs> and uh, it certainly suggests that the question is reasonable. It's only natural for people to ask that question. Mm -hmm. When the com comet Shoemaker-Levy plows into Jupiter, everybody is asking that question. Mm -hmm. uh, could it happen here? And uh, I think it's important for one to know that something of a cometary or cometary catastrophe sort did occur in the not so distant past and that makes that question could it happen here much much more interesting also um i've not met anybody yet who could answer this for me but i'll try you shoemaker levy nine uh if instead of um uh, coming as it did uh, shoemaker levy nine had been dead on course for earth could we have stopped it Boy, we would need a physicist on this program to answer that, uh, Art. I, I, my intuition says uh, no. Mm -hmm. uh, and but I, I might just hasten to add there are a number of people very close to the Velikovsky movement. I'll give an example. Uh, Dr. Victor Klub, uh, dean of uh, the Department of Astrophysics at Oxford University, who has 
Well, Dr. Klude himself has argued that only a few thousand years ago, major cometary catastrophes did affect the Earth. And he is arguing for a mobilization of international resources to find the means to, to fend off that kind of an intruder. Yes, indeed. I think that's a very good idea. Um, in addition, if Velikovsky uh, is even halfway correct, then uh, there could be easily another major period of either planetary uh, disruption or um, a, a return of a, a, a group of comets that have been gone for a long time or material that uh, could certainly head toward Earth and kind of erase us. You bet. I get asked that question a lot, and, and I guess I would have to say my personal feeling is one of, of some confidence that this is not imminent. I tend not to be a doomsday philosopher, but uh, it's impossible to deny that, that events happening not all that long ago exactly. seem logically capable of happening again, and sure. we have no way of saying. Uh, this is no way whatsoever of, of saying that there isn't an intruder out there, you know, with the Earth and its 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 path at this very moment. And, and Velikovsky again, uh, how many years B.C. was he suggesting all this occurred? Well, the the great Venus catastrophe, he argued in Worlds in Collision, occurred around 1500 B.C. 1500 B.C. Yeah. Interesting. Um, it's hard to imagine that any celestial event of that sort would be a one-time affair that, uh, that would have occurred that recently, um, then stabilized and without, uh, without, a, without the possibility of recurrence. Well, I don't know how you would go from a very stable planetary system to uh, the type of unstable planetary motions that are indicated several thousand years ago. Well, uh, to, uh, to what does uh, Velikovsky... Uh, attribute the instability that he talks about not that long ago. Okay, well, here now here's the problem when you're approaching something from a historical vantage point like this. Uh, it's one thing to say, now, look, everybody, we have a great deal of evidence available to us. This is evidence in the ground, it's ancient sources and, and, and texts, it's a consistent message from many diverse cultures. Uh, in no way were the, the uh, claims of one culture being prompted by another culture on the other side of the world, but they're giving us the same message about planetary catastrophe. Now, it's one thing to begin assimilating that evidence and to see that there's a coherent message there and to say, well, we have to begin dealing with the fact that there is a coherent message here. They are talking about an overwhelming catastrophe, and they are assigning to Venus the cause of this catastrophe as a comet-like body of a very terrifying sort. That is a, that's an absolutely terrifying thought. Um, Dave, hold on just one moment. My guest is Dave Talbot. We'll get right back to him. Many of them for this episode of cometary catastrophes and so on, that evidence doesn't answer the physics question. Therefore, it takes more than just those of us who are 
are sifting through the historical material and so on to answer the questions. Uh, I have found that this has evolved into a lifelong research just to collate the various mythical traditions and to draw dependable conclusions mm -hmm. from those. And I, I do believe you can do that, but it takes a great deal of uh, a great deal of work. The conclusions are really quite extraordinary, and they're quite prof they're quite profound. And I think they can even be convincing art if we we simply take the time to to, to examine these themes one at a time. All right. Well, let, let us do that. Uh, what about right here on Earth? I mean, the dinosaurs were now they are not. Uh, does Velikovsky have an explanation for the dinosaurs' exit? Uh, he doesn't have a specific explanation for the dinosaurs' exit because that was, of course, uh, a considerable time prior to the the Venus catastrophe and the Mars catastrophe episodes, but he argued in Earth and Upheaval that there have been major catastrophes going far, far back uh, in, in time, and uh, the extinction of the dinosaurs now said to have been now said to have involved a catastrophic event is very Velikovskian and sound. It certainly is. Uh, all right, Dave, hold on. We're at the top of the hour. We're going to break for news. We'll be right back. Dave Talbot is my guest. Velikovsky reconsidered right here tonight. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. That's my regular syndicated show speaking out. Good evening, everybody. This is Dreamland, and I'm Art Bell. Most to my own heart because in 1972, when I was really being introduced to Velikovsky's work, uh, I began what has turned into a lifelong research project. And let me just give a quick background on that. Velikovsky had claimed that the planet Saturn and the planet Earth had once moved in very close proximity as part of some kind of a system that subsequently unraveled. Hmm. <laughs> that the planet Saturn was the mythical god of the Golden Age. And he spoke of Saturn having gone kind of nova or some kind of an explosion associated with the disruption of that primitive system. That disruption being recorded, among other things, uh, mythically, as the Great Deluge. There was a large quantity of ice that reached the Earth as a result of that catastrophe and uh, gave birth to the, the Great Deluge legend. But that was just an outline of an idea, and Velikovsky never really drew out all the implications of that idea, and nothing was ever published officially by Velikovsky, but I found it extremely interesting, and it was kind of an open field to begin seeking out the evidences historically to see if something like that really could be substantiated. Now, the result of that was that I actually uh, arrived at a very unified theory of ancient mythology. It's highly Velikovskian, but it's not strictly Velikovskian. Uh, I did come to the conclusion that Velikovsky's uh, Venus and Mars scenarios in the 1500 B.C. time frame and then the, the 700 B.C. time frame, uh, that those have to be reconsidered and that there is actually 
something like a myth-making epoch in which the primary themes of myth originated. And this myth-making epoch was prior to the dawn of civilization. Now, our, the reason why I'm mentioning uh, this point specifically is this myth-making epoch, I do now firmly believe, can be regarded as the age in which all of the great mythical traditions originated and that the most traumatic experiences in the history of mankind were involved in this period of time it was a completely different natural order the planet saturn did indeed exactly as velikovsky claimed to dominate the sky at that time now i found some really extraordinary things that i had never anticipated one for example was that in a number of ancient languages, the words in those languages for sun, the, these are words that are translated as sun, such as the Greek Helios, or the Latin Sol, or the Assyrian Babylonian Shamash. Those words for sun were the names of the planet Saturn in those ancient languages. Now that is an extraordinary idea that just makes absolutely no sense. Now, but sense can be made of that if you allow a completely different interpretation to come in. Now, I eventually realized that the ancient sun gods that are at the center of many of the primitive rituals and so on at the beginning of civilization, those sun gods were the planet Saturn. And you cannot understand the story of those gods, such as the ancient Egyptian Atum-Ra. You, you cannot comprehend those stories. In terms of anything familiar to us today, and in, in terms of anything we see in the sky today, the planets were the gods. The planet Saturn reigns in the beginning as the preeminent monarch celestially, the universal monarch, the ancient sun god. And there was at that time a spectacular configuration of planets in the sky. It stretched across the whole polar region of the sky. And uh, Dave, uh, is there any uh, pictograph evidence of this? In other words, uh, if people in ancient times could look into the sky and see Venus that close yes uh, i can understand it would be the, the mythology you're talking about but i yes. would think there would be a lot of uh, pictograph uh, recordings of that well I, I think that that was a primary preoccupation actually of ancient star worshippers the pictographs are everywhere and art i can tell you that i do not know of any recurring themes in the total body of pictographic evidence around the world I do not know of a single theme that can be identified that answers to anything in our sky today. Not one, actually. Well, what can you point to that points to Velikovsky's... Uh, uh, uh... Well, I, I think actually all of the primary pictographic themes do relate to this ancient myth-making epoch and to a planetary configuration that, involved, that evolved in very spectacular ways in the sky. Now, and, and it isn't going to be possible in the period of time that we have for me to kind of demonstrate a point conclusively, but I can kind of suggest some ways in which the evidence can be approached. And as, as time allows, I think people who get into this subject substantially and orient themselves to the, the various mythological themes, they will begin to pick up the integrity and the coherence of these themes. One is the idea of the ancient sun god. Well, pictures of the ancient sun god were drawn around the world. Now, that, that image 
which is very involves a number of complexities, also occurs at very simple levels as well. It involves a circle, and inside the circle you have another circle or a star. Now that image of a uh, an orb or a star in front of or in the, in the center of a larger circle is a universal pictograph of the ancient sun god. But that's only the beginning of the pictographic uh, story because that image has many, many different associations. But I'll tell you something else. If you look, whether it's Mesoamerica or ancient Egypt, or ancient Mesopotamia, that star in the center of the circle, which is the larger circle is always the sun god itself. Right. That star in the center is always Venus. Always. Huh. Now that star, Venus, in the texts, in the mythological traditions, has a story to it. Right. All right, let me just tell you what that story is. And we have to sort of fumble our way into this first because it is such a big subject and it involves appearances or forms in the sky that we do not see today and we have to sort of remember uh, each step that we're reinterpreting ideas, we're reinterpreting language in terms of the literal meanings that these, these words had for the ancients. But that star in the center of the ancient sun god pictographically, it has in the mythical traditions a story. That sun god dies. When he dies, the golden age ends. This is true in ancient Mesopotamia, in Egypt, and uh, uh, throughout Mesoamerica. Hmm. He when, dies, he so dies, you say... when he dies, that star, pictographically in the center of the sun, becomes a flaming serpent or dragon, which is the ancient hieroglyph around the world, together with maybe four or five other hieroglyphs that are very prominent for the comet. The, the birth of the comet Venus is synchronous with, in the global mythological tradition, the death of the ancient sun god, who is Saturn. Now, whatever else one may think about these ideas, and you have to just gradually draw them out, it's a universal tradition, and it has not been previously detected by scholars. The reason it has not been previously detected by scholars is that they have tended to work in, in specialized realms. And when they have seen such anomalies as, as the name for the, the word translated, or let's say the name for the sun, meaning actually the planet Saturn, they think they're dealing with a local anomaly. So what is that suggesting occurred? That there was a pass uh, close enough to us? Uh, well, no, I, I, uh, let's see if we can answer this question first, then. Uh, what was happening fundamentally at that time? Right. We were part of a planetary system in which the planet Saturn loomed throughout the age, remembered mythically as the Golden Age. It loomed as an immense body in the sky. It was the ancient sun god, the central luminary of the sky, the universal monarch. Now, if you take any regions, ancient traditions of kingship, you trace the lines of kings historically backward, you eventually reach a mythical first king who is a very luminous figure who is, in fact, the ancient sun god. And that 
and that god is the planet saturn ruling the sky as the universal monarch considered by every ancient culture as the prototype of kings that's how powerful this entire experience uh, was on the human imagination suggesting then what that it was in an orbit uh, almost uh, similar to ours very close to earth is that well, okay now we have to get to a level of a little bit more specificity not only did this ancient sun god dominate the sky it was motionless it did not move. Now, as bizarre as it may seem, it does not matter which ancient culture you go to, that culture will place the ancient sun god at the stationary center of the sky. It is the pivot of the celestial revolutions. That means there is only one place in the sky that it could have occupied, and that's the north celestial pole. So, however it may have occurred dynamically, the axis of the Earth was magnetically or otherwise fixed on that large, immense orb of Saturn. Therefore, the tradition of the ancient central sun, the, the superior sun, the best sun. These were the ancient terms for that sun to distinguish it from the body we call sun today. And that body in the sky has a very specific history, and it can be reconstructed down to highly specific forms recorded around the world, these forms behaving in very specific ways. And uh, the history of that sun god, including the birth of the great comet Venus, which was mythically that central animating star appearing in the center of Venus that it's going forth as the great comet Venus was the exhalation or the departure of the sun god's own heart soul as a great comet, as the great fiery serpent dragon. And then there follows a period of incredible catastrophe remembered as cosmic night, the wars of the gods, tremendous upheavals, and then a, a, a regeneration of the sky and a in a substantially transformed order and this great comet Venus is just raging across the sky as this as this mother goddess figure with uh, with a flaming disheveled hair or as a, a flaming serpent battling other powers in, in the sky but that cometary figure was before this episode the star Venus seen in the center of the sun and worshipped around the, the world as the great mother. And that was the original identity of the planet Venus as the central luminous heart soul of the original universal monarch. Huh. All right. Uh, if that was the order of things, uh, is there any suggestion what mixed up the order of things, turned it into a comet? Uh, realigned everything is there any suggestion in Velikovsky about well now I have to first hasten to add uh, this reconstruction of a, a Saturn thesis and so on uh, it is Velikovsky and at it its inception uh, 
the work started under an inspiration provided by Velikovsky. Velikovsky never said that the ancient sun gods were the planet Saturn. So this is... Uh, that was my own research, Dave but it Talbot. is very well substantiated. <laughs> and uh, the idea of the central sun, in fact, has been noted by comparative mythologists uh, on many occasions, but they've noted it without explanation. And when they've noted it, they have not also noted that that figure uh, involves a name that was the name of the planet Saturn. So uh, I, I did take the research significantly beyond Velikovsky's seminal work, and uh, it began then a lifelong study of what I regard as the myth-making epoch, a discrete period before the birth of civilization in which man experienced ex extremely catastrophic events. They were the most traumatic experiences ever for mankind, I believe. And uh, at the same time, it experienced celestial uh, happenings and, and celestial events that were incredibly beautiful. And there was a yearning to return, for example, to Saturn's paradisal age, the yearning for paradise, the yearning for the golden age of Saturn. Remember that when Saturn is said to have ruled the world, that was an epoch of cosmic harmony. Every civilization really arose under the hope of, of recapturing Saturn's golden age. It's a really profound motive that you see uh, expressed in all of the primary activities of the first civilizations, the hope to recapture the age of the universal monarch. What would, uh, what would Earth have been like, uh, Dave, with Saturn in that position? Uh, well, I, I, I'm not able to address myself the dynamic issues or the meteorological I issues from any scientific vantage point. I can only talk about the apparent uh, scenes of a collective recollection. Now, the recollection is it was an age before seasons. It was an age before mm -hmm. cosmic cycles. There yes. was no clear distinction of day and night. So I have supposed that we were part of a primitive planetary system in which we were moving through some diffuse gaseous envelope, uh, perhaps extending out from Saturn, and uh, so that we were not experiencing the normal cosmic cycle. There was more of a greenhouse effect, perhaps, and, and that general diffusion of light tended to subdue the normal clear distinctions between uh, day and night. But in a subsequent period, that that idyllic setting on planet Earth is, is ruptured. Well, you suggest idyllic, but by today's ecological standards, um, on, under those conditions, life as we know it might not even be possible. For, uh, actually, that that could be true. I, I can only say that there is a, an accord, a uh, consensus of ancient mythical traditions. I believe that they occur among all the primary cultures. They remember a lost golden age, and they will say specifically about that age. It was a time of, without conflict, a time without war, a time without hunger. The earth uh, blossomed uh, continuously, an eternal spring, no seasons. 
and this age came to a catastrophic conclusion. Now, it's significant that that mythical theme does not stand alone. It stands right beside the theme of the former universal monarch, the sun god, who ruled the world while standing in one place. Well, how, how, Dave, how does that uh, stand up with the biblical... Uh... Uh, the biblical uh, paradise on earth that at once we had. Uh, is there a connection there? Oh, oh absolutely. I think the Eden paradise uh, is an expression of that same collective uh, uh -huh. recollection. And the paradise theme uh, will be found, as I said, among all of the ancient cultures, but it does not generally stand alone. There usually is a a central luminary presiding over that paradise and it turns out to be the very figure standing at the head of the line of kings who is the universal monarch who is the ancient sun god which rules the sky all right dave we, spot. we've got to hold it right there we're going to take a break there. here at the bottom of the hour we'll be back and open the telephone lines for dave talbot who's talking about lukowski and more To participate in the program, call toll-free 1-800-618-8255, 1-800-618-8255. First-time callers, area code 702-727-1222, or the wildcard line at 702-727-1295. This is the CBC Radio Network. Worlds in collision, could they have been? Could the solar uh, system have been aligned as Dave Talbot? An extension of some of Velikovsky's work suggests. If you have questions, uh, we'd be glad to try and answer them for you uh, or engage in any discussion you would like. Um, we'll give you the full... All right, back now uh, to Dave Talbot. Dave, are you there? I am indeed. All right, Dave, let me do just one thing. Let me give out a full set of numbers here. We're going to open the lines right now. The first-time caller line, in case you have never called the program, is area code 702-727-1222. That's 702-727-1222. We have the wild card line, several of those available at area code 702-727-1295. 702-727-1295. And finally, for everybody east or west of the Rockies, toll-free, it's 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. Let the lines ring, please. Until they are answered, we will come to you as soon as it is your turn. Are you ready, Dave? I am, sir. All right. Here they come. On the wild card line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Hi. Oh, uh, how you doing, Dave? Very good, sir. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was interested. I heard you talking about how uh, Venus may have entered the solar system as a uh, comet, and I was going to say that might explain why it rotates the sun in the opposite direction of the rest of our solar system. Yes, uh, the physicists who have expressed an interest in this subject, and there are some very well-trained, very competent engineers and physicists and astronomers with a strong interest in this subject, they do emphasize the anomalous rotation of Venus. It rotates uh, reverse from the other planets and very, very slowly. 
that's one of uh, a list of anomalies about Venus and so on that are very noteworthy and, and have gained a lot of attention from the Velikovsky. I've, uh, I've often wondered if, if there could be a series of planets on the opposite side of the sun that rotate possibly in the same gravitational plane or maybe in another gravitational plane of the sun and maybe, uh, as you know, different planes of the sun rotate uh, in opposite directions and uh, and uh, different speeds, I believe, or maybe not at different speeds, but they uh, they uh, rotate in opposite directions and they rotate separately. Okay, this is this is I'm sorry to say uh, outside completely my own area of expertise. All, right. All those subjects are very fascinating to me, but I just have to defer to to people who are really expert in that area. All right, all right, very good. On the first-time caller line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Hello. Hello. Yes, sir, where are you? I'm in uh, uh, Burden, Kansas. All right. Okay. Go ahead. You're Hello. on the air, sir. Go ahead. Yes, um, uh, I, I read uh, Velikovsky uh, in the early 70s, and uh, uh, at... At that time, I, uh, just from my understanding of Velikovsky, I made some predictions myself that have been that have subsequently been proven by science, like the, the hole in the center of the galaxy. One of the predictions uh, uh, that I, I involved was, the, was that the solar system travels through the galactical plane, and uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and on uh, Art Bell's mer a message from Mary, he described uh, a wave coming across. Well, this would this this would this this would fit into the prediction that I made about the galactical plane having a uh, a wave. Do you know anything about this? And has your studies led you to believe anything in this in it's, this regard? Uh, I'm all ears when anyone starts talking about that but they'll have to they'll have to teach me on this subject i just uh, i have no training in these areas i've been so completely pro preoccupied with uh shifting through the ancient material and reconstructing the primary themes around the world that i have not had the time except for more incidental discourse with astronomers and physicists uh, that are pursuing the Velikovsky and areas of research, uh, it would be nice to sort of have a Velikovsky physicist, for example, sitting alongside me here because these questions are very fascinating. And I, I'm sorry, I just I have no nothing that I could say to uh, add to your comments. <laughs> All right, um, on the wild card line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Good uh, evening. Good Hello. evening, sir. Hello. Hello? Yes, turn your radio off, oh, ma'am. ma'am. <laughs> yes, turn your radio off, please. Okay. Okay, where are you calling from? I'm calling from San Diego. San Diego, go ahead. I'd like to find out about uh, Zachariah Fitchin's book, if uh, that has any corroboration with what uh, this gentleman has to say. No, I think we're actually working in completely different fields of research. Uh, my own emphasis has been on planetary mythology. I, I've gone back and I have looked into all of the themes relative to ancient planets and celestial bodies. I, I personally concluded that 
the great themes of myth do have a very direct relationship to a spectacular planetary configuration in the sky. I believe that configuration can be reconstructed down to a surprising level of detail and that the story is truly coherent or consistent from one culture to another once you recognize the original meanings of the symbols. Uh, and this is all very literal. That They drew pictures and they told stories about great celestial forms. The character of these forms can be identified from a study of the languages themselves and that you can see there's a coherent story there. It's just that we've tried to interpret that story by reference to our sky today and none of the story or none of the aspects of the story make any sense in right. reference to our sky today. Now, Sitkin is really coming from a completely different vantage point and I, I, and I really don't have an, uh, an opinion other than this. I, I do feel that his uh, a, approach to Mesopotamian gods that I did observe in a, and I cannot recall the name of this particular book, uh, uh, I, I did feel that he was not representing the contexts in which those figures are actually presented in historical sources. He was not representing those contexts properly, but, but uh, uh, beyond that, I don't have anything uh, anything to observe on that. Well, his, his, his theory is that he got this information by decoding ancient records way, yes. way back, maybe 30,000 yes. years ago. Yes. And so that's why I wondered if you, you bet. had read about that or knew about that. No, uh, again, that's really outside my bailiwick, too. <laughs> okay. Uh, on the toll-free line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Good evening. This is Fritz from Phoenix. Hello there. Uh, Dave, have you ever given thought how Velikovsky came up with his writing system here with Venus? Perhaps he was focused on by some outside intelligence. What do you think? Well, um, he was also a great scholar. and we, we have to give him credit for that because uh, he moved toward his thesis about the planet Venus through a series of steps. He was... He was pursuing study of the time of Moses and became fascinated by the plagues of Egypt. And uh, he concluded that there was a great natural event that occurred uh, and could explain those plagues. And he began to look deeper, began to notice parallels in other lands, began to realize that well, there's a fine. body in this yeah, sky. Yeah, that, that's all fine. Well, Dave, what the caller is asking is whether there is some um, a suggestion or any suggestion in his work that uh, extraterrestrials influenced it. Is that right, Fritz? Yes. All right. Uh, no, I think actually there is, to the contrary, evidence that he, he worked through a systematic set of findings uh, to draw his conclusions. Uh, so the answer is no? I, I really don't think so. All right. On the wild card line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Hello. Hi. Um, I just wanted to comment on the extraterrestrial aspect of uh, the last caller. Yes. That Simyasi in the Zoe Meyer contact in Switzerland uh, talked about a great event that occurred where basically the, the uh, magnetic fields of our solar system were disrupted and there was a, uh, all the planets changed position. And mm -hmm. this happened sometime between 12,000 B.C. and the best that I can tell around 2024 B.C. 
And uh, she also talked at the same time about a special relationship that we had with Saturn. Oh. So I just wanted to point that out in terms of the ET involvement. All right, thank you. Okay, in other words, in other words, uh, uh, Dave, if you're working from known mythology, uh, some of these folks are coming from uh, a different direction, but the story seems uh, very similar, and it would seem to me that in your work, you might want to investigate some of these avenues that would tend to corroborate what Velikovsky said. Uh, I will indeed consider any relevant information that is passed on to me, and I do have an interest personally in these uh, other subjects, and uh, will always try to keep an open mind on them. Um, the area of my own research has been on historical material, as I've said, so uh, I just find these other dimensions fascinating and uh, would like to know more. Well, um, in pictographs and uh, or even in mythology, uh, Dave, there's a great deal suggested about extraterrestrial visits or visitors from elsewhere uh, in very ancient times. And so maybe there is some sort of connection. On the first time caller line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Hi. Hi. Uh, uh, this is Dick. I'm calling from Reno. Yes, Dick. Uh, we have not been able to receive you tonight because this lousy station, KOH, has preempted your program with a football game. Well, don't say they're lousy. Well, well they, they are. are actually, they're, they're, sir, they're a very good radio station, and they will carry the program well, uh, after the game. I would like to suggest that you get on KNX because of the skip. KNX comes up here very well. Yes, I'm, I'm well aware of KNX. And it's a much better station. Yes, well, KNX doesn't do talk, sir. They do news. No, I know. We listen to it most of the time, except when you're on. I see. Anyhow, uh, this station has many problems, technical, and they have the worst conceivable local commercials you can imagine. Well... You know, so, if I, I were I, you, I would be very careful about slamming your local affiliate, or you may end up with none at all. Well, none would be better than this. Sorry. <laughs> uh, thank you. And uh, again, I would I would be very careful about doing that. You're going to end up with no affiliate at all. On the uh, toll-free line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Hi. Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm calling from Laguna Beach. Hello, Andrew. Hi, um, Dave. Uh, I really enjoy this show, and I've read Velikovsky's work. Very good. And I've been to Egypt and in the Valley of the Kings into some of the older tombs. And it is amazing, the murals, the astronomical murals surrounding some of these ancient tombs. Oh, yes. Um, my big question is, in your theory, you have a Saturn being in the north. Yes. How would the southern hemispheric uh, land masses view it? Well, they would wouldn't, uh, actually, and it is interesting that the traditions nevertheless seem to be present. As, uh, for example, there is the myth of the stationary sun among the Inca. Now, uh, one of the great experts on uh, Mesoamerican and South American mythology, Zia Nuthall, noticed that that myth was really the myth of the polar sun god, but it must have been carried down uh, south of the equator and so on by migration over time. You even see the same indications of, of myths of the central sun and so on and associations with the axis and pivot of the turning sky among uh, the uh, aborigines of Australia. There's a great deal of evidence to suggest that 
what was seen in the northern hemisphere and gave birth to these legends did disperse around the world. And it would be vi so big, it would be visible from the, to the north, even from the southern hemisphere of country. No, no, I, I'm saying that they wouldn't have seen it from the southern hemisphere. The, the, the accounts, the mythology, the symbolism uh, would have originated in that hemisphere where it was visible, but there was apparently substantial migration southward of those Im images and symbols. For example, at Cusco, uh, in uh, I think uh, in Peru, the, um, the the temple to the former superior sun god has an opening to the north, which was noted by Zelia Nuttall in her pioneering work on the origins of civilization. And uh, she claimed that 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 myth of the former polar luminary was carried southward. In other words, the myth originated in the northern hemisphere. That's very this is why this is why we we have such extraordinary parallels in the myths of this ancient sun god, the cultural hero, and so on, from Alaska to uh, uh, Peru. Is this the same then Venus perturbation that uh, Velikovsky talks about in 1500 B.C. associated with the uh, Jewish people leaving Egypt and the polar shift that? Uh, cause the Red Sea to split and the amount of carbon dioxide in the air leading to the creation of manna. Carbon, uh, 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 what he considered to be a, uh, a reaction between lightning and uh, the carbon in the sky. Could you elaborate? Uh, well, let's just talk about Velikovsky's idea, and I, I really have to, for Velikovsky's sake, distinguish certain things that I've talked about from his work. Uh, now, Velikovsky claimed that the great plagues of Egypt, the plagues of the Exodus and so on, were connected with an overwhelming cat uh, Venus catastrophe, and the earth was completely shrouded in the, the great cometary tail of Venus. He, he claimed that out of that gaseous envelope, uh, there was uh, a congealing of hydrocarbons, uh, or, or uh, carbohydrates, I should say, uh, of an edible uh, sort, and that that material descending on the earth was the source of, of manna uh, in the uh, Exodus account. And directly associated with Moses and the migration through the desert. Yes, and, and he claimed that there was an event remembered as the parting of the Red Sea that was caused by the tidal forces of, of Venus and and uh, the, the, the plagues of Egypt, the great wind and the earthquake and so on, and perhaps even the descent of vermin were related to this Venus cometary catastrophe. Now, I, I, I'm in a little bit of an ambiguous position here because my own research led a little in a different direction, and I, I, I tended to reinterpret some of these things on a, in a non-Velikovskian way. Well, Velikovsky in, in the fundamental sense, but not Velikovsky in, in the specific sense that he was interpreting those stories. So uh, I, I think out of respect for Velikovsky, we we need to acknowledge that it was he who claimed that manna had, had descended from a uh, in other words, what you're saying cometary is, tale. Uh -huh, all right. What you're saying is you don't buy that, and that's where you differ with him. Is that about right? Yeah, I, I've not been convinced of that. Let's put it this way. All right. Uh, very good. Well, we don't have to tiptoe around things, uh, Dave. Okay. <laughs> and I'll, I'll avoid that. Okay. Right. okay. On the wild card line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Hello. 
Hello there. No, you're not. On the second wild card line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Good uh, evening. Hello there. Uh, hello. Yes, hello. Yes, I have, um... Pardon? Go ahead. Well, um... I have over 700 replies from an ad in the newspaper. For what? And, pardon? For what? Could you hold on just a second? No. Goodbye. On the first time caller line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Good evening. Hello there. Hello. Yes, you're on the air. Turn your radio off. I have done that. Okay, good. Where are you calling from? From Phoenix. From Phoenix. All right, go ahead. Um, my question is, if Velikovsky was such a renowned scholar before he published this work, what happened that the tables turned that he was then vilified for not being a good scholar? How, how did it not get turned around that people took the work more seriously rather than degrading the scientists? That's a good question. What, uh, what vilified him, uh, Dave? Well, he claimed certain things that, that the scientific community as a whole felt were completely incredible. And uh, they would never believe that only a few thousand years ago planets were moving on such erratic courses. They would never believe that ancient mythology, a completely discredited source, uh, could provide you a, a level of evidence on which you could challenge the foundations of modern science. Science has always assumed in considering the planets that those bodies have moved on the same courses for many, many millions of years. Well, and of entire course. schools of science have have, have, have back actually been founded on those premises. Yes, well, it would seem to me to support uh, the biblical version of things, uh, Dave. Is, yes. Uh, and you, you, you do agree with that. Now, as you know, uh, the Bible claims that creation is not very old. Old, that things were very different not very long ago, cosmically, just a few thousand years. And this would tend to support that. Isn't that correct? Well, I don't think Velikovsky believed that he was, he was supporting that kind of literal interpretation of the Old Testament and so on. Well, whether but or not he Chris thought it. did think that they thought that, that that's what Velikovsky was doing. Oh, I and see. in a sense, he was throwing his weight be, behind those kind of literal interpretations of the Old Testament. All right, on that note, we've got a pause. Top of the hour, you're listening to Dreamland from the High Desert. I'm Art Bell. But Dave, we were talking about the vilification of uh, uh, Um uh, And when did it, do you think that uh, regular science and scientists uh, vilified Velikovsky, uh because his theories seemed to validate uh, biblical explanations? I do think that that was one of the reasons, and they, they said so explicitly. I think there were other reasons as well. I think every... Uh, leading scientist of the day was entrenched in a work that had, had existed by inertia for uh, many, many decades. 
and life's work was invested in those theoretical frameworks. Textbooks were written, classes were taught with these theoretical frameworks leading the way. Velikovsky was uh, proposing to remove the rug entirely, and uh, they just felt that that was completely untenable, and it was just too preposterous to even take the time to read. So the denunciations of Velikovsky generally were written by scientists who had not even read his book. That's how horrendous that controversy really was. All right. Uh, there's a lot of it going on today, too. On the toll-free line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Uh, good evening. Hello. Good evening. This is uh, Eugene speaking from SoCal, Northern California. Yes, good sir. evening. Uh, I, had, I had a question concerning uh, Velikovsky's uh, theory of uh, reverse polarity. Uh, was that, uh, did he allege it was caused by a large body moving close to the earth? Yes, he did, uh, as I recall, and I, I believe that he, he suggested that an electrical discharge passing between the comet Venus and the planet Earth was involved in uh, a reversal of polarity, and, and uh, he, he suggested also a tilting of the axis of the Earth, in fact, a tipping over of the Earth. Okay, was, was this a phenomenon? caused by a large comet, or was it a potential um, scenario that could occur again? Did he predict it? May well, I guess again? as Art himself was emphasizing, if it happened once, why couldn't it happen again? I don't have any reason to say that it will happen again, but I, I couldn't say that it never will. Okay, I had one other question that's sort of related. Uh, um, there was an abduction in Pascaliga, Mississippi on uh, October the 11th, 1973. Uh, I don't hear much about that abduction. Was it uh, defra uh, Did they find it was uh, fraudulent? Or okay, well, that, that would be out of the scope of my... Uh, uh, my guess, right, Dave? Or do you have oh, I, no, you I would not have anything I could say on that. All right. Um, a large electrical discharge that caused a reversal of the poles. Well, the Earth, uh, according to Velikovsky, on a uh, very close passage of the comet Venus, was seriously disturbed on its axis. Uh, the axis tilted and perhaps turned over. And Velikovsky also uh, suggests that the direction of the Earth's rotation has uh, changed uh, more than once as a result of cosmic catastrophes, that the sun once rose in the west. Well, I, I have said it before, and I will say it again. If all this occurred in the very uh, recent past, cosmically, yeah. then there's every reason to believe that it could easily occur again, and that would coincide with some of the uh, predictions made uh, by Nostradamus and others about what's going to occur around the year 2000. I'm sure you don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> there are a lot of doomsday predictions. Now, I'm not a, a doomsday yes, myself. I understand. It's just that uh, what you're saying fits into it uh, yes, very easily for me. And, right. and, but I should hasten to add that much of the doomsday psychology is rooted in the past. It's rooted in a collective memory of overwhelming catastrophe. And generally, as the calendar reaches round the Numbers. Yeah, but Dave, that, that bolsters that idea. I know exactly what you're saying, and I'm not going to dispute the theoretical possibility of, of catastrophes happening again, uh, and I... And I think we just have to leave it as an open question. We do not know of anything at this moment, such as a cometary intruder. But what did happen in the past certainly could happen again. I, no, that's I that's right. All right. On that. the toll-free line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Hi. Yeah, I'd like to ask your, uh, your guest if he knows anything about uh, Boat's Law. About what? Bode's Law. 
Well, it, it, it's a subject of rather continuous discussion among the physicists and so on involved in the Velikovskian issue, but I, uh, I would not be able to address it myself. And incidentally, Art, if it's okay with you and at the appropriate juncture, I should mention this symposium coming up in just a few days. It's an international symposium uh, in the Portland area with scholars from around the world, and it will include people who can address Bode's Law and other major dynamic issues raised by Velikovsky's work. All right. Uh, Dr. Victor Klub will be present. He's the head of the Department of Astrophysics at Oxford University. The very well-known astronomer Tom Van Flandern, uh, the anthropologist, head of the Department of Anthropology at Drew University, uh, Roger Westcott, former president of the American Linguistics Association, a leading classicist uh, with an excellent reputation around the world, a professor of classics uh, at Bard College, Bill Mullen, will be president. Will be present. Uh, Dr. Vine Deloria, perhaps the most popular Native American writer in the country. And, uh, the, uh, and, and the theme? And the theme is Velikovsky, Ancient Myth, and Modern Science. Now, wh wh what I am able to bring to this discussion is the ancient mythology. What really rounds out a discussion such as this is having a physicist, an engineer, an astronomer, a geologist, an archaeologist, an anthropologist, a mythologist, and a historian all sitting together and comparing notes because it has really happened that over the past 20 years some real leaders in the scholarly community coming from many different types of education and training are drawing converging conclusions that are supportive of Velikovsky. This is a breakthrough kind of international event happening uh, in the Portland area the 25th to 27th of November. And our, uh, because of the, the calendar, and this is so eminent at the moment, if it's appropriate, I'd like to give a phone number. Uh, particularly people on the West Coast, I think they can find a way to get here for that event and have right. an interest in the Velikovsky subject. All right, me. go ahead and give the phone number. It's 503-643-5863, and please call between 10 o'clock uh, in the morning and 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and we'll give you full details uh, on the, the uh, symposium. All right, area code 503-643-5863. Yes, and that's for information on the symposium 25th to 27th of this month, so it's only days away, but it is going to be an event that will get a great deal of attention, and the scholars are coming to this event with impeccable credentials. And they're not all Velikovskians in any strict sense at all. They, they, they are all, I believe, catastrophists and believe that major catastrophes have occurred in uh, remarkably recent times, and it's mm -hmm. a, a great gathering of scholars. All right. On the wild card line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Hi. Uh, hi, Art uh, and Dave. Uh, this Hello. is Al from uh, Joshua Tree, California. Yes, sir. Yes. And uh, I'd like to ask Dave a question. In your research, Dave, were you able to find that uh, the mythology of all religions today came from uh, astronomy, astrology, and also the uh, 12 signs of the zodiac? All right. Well, the 12 signs of the zodiac, I personally believe, are late, sir, but uh, the, the astronomical or celestial origins of the, the great uh, myths of the world, I have no doubt of that. 
the first expressions of the religions were intimately tied to these great mythical traditions. The religions were entirely cosmic in their original orientations, and I mentioned earlier the, the myth of the original superior sun god, uh, and those religions venerated or worshipped that ancient celestial power around the world. There really is no question on that, and I'd be happy to talk uh, further on that if there's any specific questions that anybody has in that area. Well, what would be the best example you could give us of, of that tracing some well, modern, modern religion? Well, the ancient Egyptians, because they are so ancient and they're so well expressive of the, the origins of civilization and the profound orientation to the sky. The original sun god, Atum Ra, is remembered as, as having presided over a golden age. He is remembered as the prototype of kings in the sky, organizing a celestial kingdom that became the the model, the exemplary kingdom in the sky that was the model for the kingdom on earth. But that figure eventually fades into the background. The end of the the age of Atum Ra really is characterized by overwhelming catastrophes and wars of the gods. Now, uh, that myth is really universal. You see the same thing in the age of Kronos, for example, which is remembered as a golden age, and Kronos was the prototype of kings in the sky. The end of the age of Kronos meant the, the, the birth of catastrophe, the wars of the gods, the clash of the titans, and so on. Well, Kronos was, of course, the Greek name of the planet Saturn. A yeah. Greek ostracon also identified the... Egyptian sun god Ra as the planet Saturn. Now, there are a whole series of interrelationships here. It takes time to draw these out, but you do eventually see that there is an incredibly coherent story. All right, um, to the phone lines. Um, on the toll-free line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Yeah, this is Dave in Wichita. I was wondering if Dave has uh, studied any of the ancient uh, Eastern philosophies in regard to the, the advent of... Uh, 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 celestial catastrophes on Earth. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Uh, oh yes, and and uh, now there was a there was of course a pervasive myth across in India of the ancient central light of heaven, Brahma. Brahma was remembered as the light which achieved the center and split and rose and set no more, and presided over a uh, a golden age. Now that age of perfection ended in a sweeping catastrophe. And it's really a myth uh, that corresponds perfectly with the myths of other ages, uh, uh, with the myths of golden ages around the world. I guess right now we're at the bottom of the Iron Age, and if, assuming that, well, there's seven ages that all get wiped out cosmically by the Earth tilting on its axis. And I was wondering if the there's three of them that have been destroyed by comets, they say, and so I was wondering what the other four could have been destroyed by, perhaps Saturn? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think you have to be really careful when it comes to these systems and so on that evolve later. What happens with tribal merging is that you get a great number of traditions of catastrophe being assimilated in various chronicles and so on, and then various philosophies and, and systems of analysis uh, emerging in which they... they pull together the different threads. Well, there's a lot of duplication going on in that. And you don't generally find a uh, 
coherent from one culture to another when it comes to these elaborated systems of you know how many ages have there been, uh, how many catastrophes. Uh, uh, yes, but should there not be, David, aside from the cultural differences and the perspectives, uh, the uh, the, the stories uh, or the mythology should be very similar. Well, I, I think the stories are similar, but they're also duplicated to an incredible extent. I mean, the same mythical figures, for example, will exist by the hundreds in certain regions of the world. You, you see, the, there's an ancient mythical figure that I would call the warrior hero, for example. He can be identified through systematic analysis as, as having been originally inspired by the behavior of the planet Mars. Now, that figure, the warrior hero, emerges in later times as a kind of trickster figure that just populates mythology by the thousands. And that's because every ancient tribe remembered this figure. He, this figure was very active. He is always a consort of the mother goddess who turns out on analysis to have been the planet Venus. Hmm. But what did that mean? I mean, these aspects of the story require quite fine analysis, but that there was a figure remembered by all of these ancient tribes as the great ancestral warrior hero is really significant. You look at details of that story down to, down to many, many fascinating parts and so on, uh, that they would occur around the world is just uh, too remarkable. This is the warrior hero prince who consorts with the daughter of a great king. Now, why? Uh, where did such a story come from? Well, I believe you can actually answer that by going to the earliest expressions of those myths. And you see that the myths originated in a spectacular celestial uh, epoch. Uh, I mean, an epoch of celestial figures behaving in very specific ways. The planet Saturn is at the heart of that story. The planet Venus is intimately involved in that story, as I suggested earlier. And the planet Mars is, in fact, the most active figure of all, and which is why he populates the mythscape so dominantly in later times. All right. On the toll-free line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Good evening. Hello there. No, you're not. On the wild card line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Hi. Hi, I'm calling from San Diego. Yes, sir. And uh, I just wanted to uh, restate again the, about Vichen. Oh, uh, did you call earlier, sir? No, no, the, okay. the lady called up and tried to say something. I think Vichen is kind of related to uh, Mr. Talbot's idea because uh, he talked about a period of 3,600 years where the uh, an extra planet in the solar system mm -hmm. uh, closes in and... Uh, some of the things that are explained by it, such as the asteroid belt, uh, which was a result of an earlier collision with one of the moons of this planet. And uh, I, if I do a little quick math, since your author said that the, uh, the things that Velikovsky talked about occurred at 1500 B.C., it should be coming back about uh, 2100. Uh, uh, oops. <laughs> I, I made exactly the same connection, caller. Uh, so, uh, 
I thought it would be good to talk about it. And the second thing uh, I wanted to ask is uh, he's planning on publishing his own ideas uh, pretty soon. That's a good question. Uh, how about that, Dave? Well, I published a book called The Saturn Myth in 1980. It was published by uh, Doubleday, and uh, I, I have a series of volumes. Uh, this work has expanded substantially in uh, the last five to seven years, and it will be some time before I can bring those to completion. But uh, I'm in... I'm with the group right now that is in production on two video documentaries. One is called Velikovsky, and the other is called In Saturn's Shadow. And, and the, that second documentary does highlight the Saturn uh, research. So I'm hoping that through a series of video documentaries, we will be able to save some time in bridging the communications gap here to get a, a general story out to people, and then the, the, that the public published material would follow that but this is an interest this is a field in which the interest has been very high now by scholars who have been pursuing the historical material and I think there is an incredible story that is going to come out in the next few years uh, do you expect there to be uh, discoveries in modern astronomy or science uh, any other field of science uh, which will begin to verify Velikovsky? Uh, uh, well, I, I really do, and, and uh, I think anybody who would take a fair look at the, uh, the direction of space age discovery would have to say that the image of the solar system presented by modern science today is much more Velikovskyan in appearance than it ever was in the, the vicinity of 1950 when Velikovsky published Worlds and Collision. I, I mean, Everything that we have learned about the planets as the result of space age discovery has emphasized recent geological activity. All right, Dave, on that note, we've got to pause here at the bottom of the hour. Dave Talbot is my guest, uh, the works of Vilikovsky and beyond. Uh, two, less than two and a half, or just about two and a half hours now to order the newsletter, the inaugural edition. After that, the chance gone. The number is 1-800-917-4278. Visa MasterCard only. A Visa MasterCard only. $29.95 a year at 1-800-917-4278. Broadcast program. From the Kingdom of Nine, you're hearing Greenland with Art Bell. To participate in the program, call toll-free 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. First-time callers, area code 702-727-1222. Or the wildcard line at 702-727-1295. This is the CBC Radio Network. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, here's a fax in from Mike in Olympia, art and guest. I have extensively researched the pole shift theory due to be triggered by the conjunction on May 5th, 2000. Part of my research led me to Velikovsky. I missed an hour of the show, so I don't know if this was brought up or not. What do you think of the 5-5-2000 possibility? Well, uh, um... Actually, you're mentioning that uh, right now is the first I've ever heard of that. Uh, and I, I would just have to group that with other predictions of uh, doomsday events 
that I, they're, they're just so completely outside my own area of expertise. Uh, well, it is Velikovskian. It's just the It's future. a Velikovskian idea, certainly. I mean, it has that, that motif to it, and I'd be interested in seeing when people have something to suggest relative to... Uh, a uh, anticipated disaster and so on. I'd be interested in seeing the nature of the reasoning. I, I do think we have to apply normal rules of logic and demonstration and not uh, not fall into the trap of, of just simply uh, speculating on a subject randomly. Mm -hmm. now, and, and we do see a lot of that when it comes to this type of subject. So I, I'm Personally, I'm very reluctant to make statements relative to anticipated uh, disasters that the, that the solar system has been unstable in very recent times is enough uh, of a warning to us. And beyond that, I think that we have to we have to speak with some evidence in hand and so on. All right. Uh, from Al at the University of Arizona, I'd like to ask Dave if he's looked into historical India. Uh, because um, uh, they understood astronomy to be to a very high degree. India is also where the Greeks learned science. This was during Alexander the Great. Well, I have looked into the uh, the great myths of India extensively, and, and yes, there was a burgeoning astronomy in, in India. It did tend to come later. Uh, I think most scholars would say that the birthplace of astronomy was in, in Mesopotamia, and, and they would say as well that the Greeks picked up a great deal of uh, of learning in, on astronomical matters from the Babylonians and so on. But uh, the ancient mythical traditions of India, I do feel, speak with the same voice about the ancient uh, golden age, the catastrophic conclusion of that age. You see the same figures of the mother goddess and the warrior hero, very active in subsequent yes. epochs and so on. And these stories can be reconstructed down to very, very finite details, I believe. All right. On the toll-free line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Hi. Hello. Hello. I was caught unaware. I've been trying for so long. I thought, well, I'm going to get disconnected <laughs> in a moment. Uh, three things I'd like for you to touch on. First of all, Venus, the, the name Venus, and the root word meaning light, Lucifer, and its connection. All right, let's take these one at a time. Uh, anything there, uh, Dave? Well, I think there probably are a lot of old Indo-European roots related to Venus. Uh, one of the interesting associations of Venus is as the old hair star uh, and the bearded star. You have the bearded Venus, Venus Barbata, uh, the bearded Ishtar, the bearded Aphrodite, and so on, which is particularly incongruous in view of the female character of that personality. And yet it is very very dominant. Uh, the, the word Venus itself has been connected with an ancient uh, Indo-European root meaning beard or lock of hair. Now in the ancient lexicon of the comet, the beard and the lock of hair is the foremost hieroglyph for All the right. comet. Alright, we've got to keep these short, Dave. Um, uh, your second question, caller? Also about the idea of the twelfth planet and, the, and how it was the Sumerians based their numbers on 12. Uh, I don't have anything to add to that. Second thing is perhaps we were in a binary system in which two stars uh, uh, orbited each other and the asteroid belt came from where they canceled out and the object could no longer hold itself under its own attraction. The thesis that I intend to argue very forcefully for will have uh, 
Jupiter and Saturn as part of an ancient binary, and the Earth was inseparably tied to that system. All right. Uh, let's see where to go. Let's go here. Wild card line. You're on the air with Dave Talbot. Yes. Uh, thanks for taking my call tonight, Jamie, program director of OK Gold in Northeast Oregon. Yes, sir. We've got. Uh, I've got a question, and I, I'm sorry I missed part of the show tonight. But uh, did you touch on anything that had to do with the? You do a lot of the mythological studies. Yes. Um, did you touch on anything that had to do with the pyramids in Egypt? Well, I'm very interested in pyramids as a, as a global phenomenon because the pyramid as a symbolic form does not have any reference to anything that we experience in the sky today, and yet there are surprisingly similar forms. Uh, and yes, the pyramid does figure very prominently in my own research, but I would then have to, to make sense of that, I would have to begin talking about the world mountain or cosmic mountain. And, and on every continent, really, the pyramid was a symbol of what was remembered as the world mountain. But that's a subject that is hard to approach without covering other ground first. So it didn't, didn't, you didn't actually cover a lot of maybe what the universe used to look like and, and the pyramid somehow tied into that. The pyramid does tie in very directly with what I believe that the solar system once looked like. We experienced the cosmic mountain, even Mount Olympus and Mount Zion, but every cosmic mountain of every ancient culture was a phenomenon experienced. It was seen. It was a, it was a visible stream of literal material stretching between the Earth and a body in the polar sky. So it, it rises along the world axis. It, it appears as the axle of the turning sky. It's very literal. It's very visible. And I think it's an inescapable concept once you, once you see the concurrence of the myths around the world. You can explore that myth in great detail and see that it was not just regarded as a mountain, but as a stream of life, a river, of, a luminous river of fire, the north wind or south wind welling up uh, beneath the land of the gods, which was the entire preoccupation of ancient man. Wow. And, uh, and that's why the words for mountain will merge with the words for north wind or south wind. It just depends on the nature of the respective languages, which means below. And and, uh, uh, it, and it will uh, mean also pillar, wind, and water. Basically, are the are the concepts, and it's the it's the wind, river, mountain, pillar. Etymologically, the words are inseparably tied to each other in in more than one language, and that's because mythically they were they were attaching different symbols to the same celestial phenomenon. Wow, what can I say? It sounds huge. Thanks for taking yeah. my call. Yeah. Thank, <laughs> you thank, you, thank you for making it. It sounds like it would take another program to do all that. There are many details which we will do better to circumvent right now. All right, on the toll-free line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Uh, good evening. Yes, uh, Cynthia Biohazard here from uh, KVI Country. I have some dates of planetary alignment. Okay, I think that's uh, the May 5th date, 2000. Is that one of them? What, what what day? May 5th of 2000. I have June 19th, 2001. That's closest, but I've got... Also, I have October 4th, 1995, and June 15th, 1996. And a question to you, Art. Yes. Have you seen Generations yet? No, not yet. <laughs> um, 
Well, Art, uh, he just mentioned uh, the um, uh, the concept of alignment, and, and there is an ancient mythical concept that is very crucial here, and it's fundamental to the entire reconstruction that I'm offering, and that is the myth of the Great Conjunction. The, the myth is that the planet stood in line during the mythical golden age. There was an alignment or conjunction of planets of a different sort than we see today. Today it's a very tentative and ephemeral alignment and very remote from us. But the planetary system that I am proposing we experienced so dramatically just a few thousand years ago involved a sustained conjunction of, of Saturn and Jupiter. The two bodies were moving on synchronous orbit, so we could not even see Jupiter. Now, this is why when that planetary system broke down, Jupiter emerged as the sun god reborn, the sun right. god regenerated. Jupiter is, on, in all of the dominant astronomical traditions, the child of Saturn, for reasons that make no sense to us today. And when Kronos is overthrown, it is by Zeus, who is Jupiter. When Saturn gives way to a successor, that successor is Jupiter. But you can, you can pursue that identification throughout the ancient astronomies, and you see essentially the same story of the Golden Age giving way to catastrophe and a new, and a new figure then looming subsequently who is identified with Jupiter. There's no reason looking out at the distant stars and so on, or planets, why we would conjure these kind of ideas out of nothing about the planets. There's some concrete experience involved in all of this. All right. All right. Uh, we've got to continue. On the toll-free line, on the air with Dave Talbot. Hi. Yes, uh, I'm a religious studies student at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Yes. And uh, I'd like Mr. Talbot to clarify a statement you had made earlier. It was about the primitive religion. All right. Uh, turn your radio off, please. Oh, sure. Hold on. Uh, about primitive religions. Okay. Uh, yes, go ahead now. Um, I was curious that uh, he had made a statement saying that primitive religions, and he cited Egyptian solar religions, um, saying that uh, they were merely based on astronomical phenomena or myths associated with astronomical phenomena. And yet, in my studies, I've been taught that primitive religions really are based on the worship of nature or... Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we have to distinguish... Uh, here between primitive religions in the sense that I was using it and in the sense that you use it. You mean like modern primitive tribes and so on. Uh, I see modern primitive tribes as simply giving us very distant echoes of ancient beliefs. Uh, I was using primitive in the sense of the very of the first recorded or the first known religions that can be identified from historical sources. Those religions were incredibly preoccupied with cosmic themes and I suggested that this ancient sun god figure who is explicitly identified in the astronomical traditions as the planet Saturn not the sun that this figure is at the center of these ancient rituals and rites that civilization itself seems to have uh, been born out of those rituals uh, reenacting a uh, former time, the golden age of Saturn. And so then uh, uh, modern uh, 
uh, modern, uh, for example, early uh, American Indian culture would only show you brief echoes of this much older myth. That's exactly so, I believe. Mm -hmm. But the preoccupation with things in the sky was literal, and it was, I mean, it was complete. And even the technologies of the early civilizations can be shown to, to have a very interesting connection with those earlier rituals. I mean, where did the wheel come from, for example? There was a wheel being used in rites and rituals around the world before man ever harnessed the wheel for any practical purpose. That wheel was cosmic in its, its mythical context. They turned praying wheels and various calendar wheels and other wheels on the walls of temples before they ever used a wheel for a practical purpose. That was their reenactment locally of the turning of the cosmic wheel in the sky. Now, who holds the cosmic wheel in the sky? Well, look at the ancient myths of the planet Saturn in many cultures. You will see him holding the cosmic wheel. That was a visible apparition in the sky. It towered over man. Every ancient city, every ancient temple was a replica of that great wheel, which is why they were originally conceived as wheels. There's a incredibly large story to be told on all of this. All right, Dave. On the toll-free line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Hi. Hi. Where are you, sir? Radio. Hello? I'm calling from Arizona. I can barely hear you talking okay. to your phone. Can you hear me now? Yeah, that's much better. Okay, I'm calling from Arizona. Yes. I was wanting to ask him what, well, what was the significance of the sun then? What did the sun itself serves. Well, I don't have any doubt that the sun was present, but it wasn't the subject of the myths. What the myths were focused on was an evolving, spectacular configuration in the sky. It was immense. It was extremely close to the earth. It was catastrophic. The fate of man hung in the, the balance. The, the reason why I say I, the body we call sun was there is that that configuration of planets involved a spectacular crescent on, on Saturn. Now, as the earth was as the axis of the Earth was turning, that crescent revolved visually around the polar center, and that gave the ancient daily cycle the relationship of that crescent to the archaic cycle of day and night is very clearly established. That crescent pointed west, so to speak, and was descending as the sky darkened and that configuration grew bright. It was directly blow, below as the configuration was most spectacular and bright. Then as the crescent r rose to the right, the sky was uh, surrounding it was brightening, and so the configuration faded. And as the crescent was above, that was the period of diminished light of that spectacular configuration. And, and, and I throw this out as a test for anyone. Investigate ancient symbols uh, of the crescent and its relationship to the daily cycle. It will make, that symbolism will make no sense in terms of any behavior of our little crescent moon today or anything of that sort. You will see a direct relationship between the positions of that crescent, and it might be just depicted as a pure crescent, or it might be presented as the horns of a bull or the twin peaks of a great cosmic mountain or a ship sailing around the, the sky. The positions of that crescent form in relationship to the daily cycle are those positions that would be predicted by any theory that puts the planet Saturn at the pole illuminated by the sun so that the earthbound observer saw a crescent on that body turning as the earth 
Axis Turn. All right, very little amount of time here, Dave. Um, on the wild card line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Hi. Hi, I'm calling from Eastern Oregon. Yes. And my question was, uh, in your research, did you find anything relating to the Star of Bethlehem? Oh, good question, actually. That really is a good question, but unfortunately, no. <laughs> so the I just, uh, I, I just never reached that particular uh, subject, and I, my suspicion is that most everything that is stated in that regard is speculative. But. Uh... Hmm. All right. On the toll-free line, you're on the air with Dave Talbot. Good evening. Yeah, um, I need Linda Howell's full address. I have a ton of stuff to give her on the heart, well, okay, uh, we, heart stuff. Yes, Can we I get that. Yes, we gave that earlier in the program, sir. I didn't get it all. I got PO Box five three eight Huntingdon, and the, I just need the rest. I think it's Huntingdon. Uh... Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's in Pennsylvania. Huntington Beach, I believe it is. Uh, let's see. Huntington Valley, uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, the zip code is 19006. Oh, great. I got a ton of stuff for her. Well, okay, there you go. Thank you. All right, thank you. Um, well, Dave, um, once again, do you want to quickly give us the information without going through all the speakers on... You bet. International Symposium. Portland, Oregon, at the Holiday Inn, Portland South, the 25th to 27th of this month. Here's the number to call for information, 503-643-5863. Some 20 to 25 speakers from around the world will address the Velikovsky issue. You'll see some very spectacular fireworks at this uh, symposium, and it's, it's going to emerge as a very, uh, well, a landmark event, let's say. Anybody with an interest in the Velikovsky subject, uh, I think, will find this extremely fascinating. Well, it certainly brushes up against what a lot of our other guests have had to say, but more about the future uh, than the past, Dave. But uh, maybe that's and maybe that's how we learn about the future is studying the past. Indeed, <laughs> uh, Dave. I want to thank you for being on the program. It's oh, been, my pleasure. It's been a pleasure having you, and um, we'll have you back again sometime. Oh, I hope so. Dave Talbot, thank you very much uh, for appearing with us on Dreamland. Now, um, I want to remind everybody that next week Dr. Raymond Moody is going to be our guest, and I know he's a big favorite. Uh, Dr. Moody seen just uh, about on every television program. Uh, dealing with anything that relates to his work uh, at all. Most recently, the Ancient Prophecies television program. And uh, I guess this is my last opportunity, and I mean my last opportunity, to urge you to call and get our newsletter after dark. This is it. Uh, the deadline is in about uh, two hours, two hours from now. After that, your opportunity to get the premier issue is gone. Only Visa and MasterCard orders. Repeat, only Visa and MasterCard orders. Do it now or be sorry. The number is 1-800-917-4278. Again, 1-800-917-4278. For everybody at the network, thank you and good night. This has been Dreamland. A program dedicated to an examination of areas in the human experience not easily nor neatly put in a box. Things seen at the edge of vision, awakening a part of the mind as yet not had. 
Yet things every bit as real as the air we breathe but don't see. Please join us again next week at this time for Dreamland.